Foxes and Fowl is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. I'm Aaron. My guest today is Matt Humphrey. Matt's a writer, educator, and Anglican priest. He serves as Director of Theological Education for Arasha, Canada, and is the Community Life Minister of Abbey Church in Victoria and the Curator of Wild Church in Victoria, BC. He's also a member of the Emmaus community, a new monastic community committed to prayer, simplicity, and presence. His passion for creation care as Christian practice is infectious and reminds us of the importance of integrating our beliefs in every aspect of everyday life. We talk about a bunch of things, so stick around afterwards for some things I'm taking away from our time. Until then, here's my conversation with Matt Humphrey. Reverend Matt Humphrey, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's uh, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. How are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, doing great today. It's a beautiful day, beautiful start of the week here. I'm glad to be a part of it. That's excellent. I know there was snow on the island uh, for some people. Did you get any of that? Oh, yeah. We had yeah, a pretty significant volume of snow, and it's, uh, it's a reminder of... Um, just how mild our temperatures are that a day and a half where the temperature actually drops below zero, <laughs> we get six to 10 inches of snow all of a sudden. So yeah, yeah. it was a, it was a whole mess. The kids had a great time and, but mm-hmm. we've, it's all gone now. It's all melted. And in fact, yesterday I was on a walk uh, by the ocean and, you know, in a sweatshirt again, it was just warm and it's amazing. Hardly, hardly time for Victoria's uh, one snow plow to get geared up. It, it was really struggling. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Cool. Well, welcome. I'm so glad to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, on, on this podcast, we talk a lot about uh, the idea of vocation, largely because we're interested in people's stories, but also because we think uh, our everyday kind of work is, is where God shows up. And, uh, and then one of the pressing questions in most people's lives is how we ought to live, what we ought to do with ourselves, and how we figure that out. <laughs> Um, so I, I, I want to know a little, I know a little bit about your kind of journey to this point. Um, I'd like to know more. I'd like to uh, introduce you to anybody who's listening as well. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to where you are now. You're, you're a theological educator at Arasha Canada, the community life minister at Abbey Church in Victoria, and uh, you're the leader of a really interesting alternative ministry called Wild Church. Uh, that, that's a lot of stuff you're doing right now. So uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got to this place and, and the things that you do. Sure. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> I guess in terms of my vocation and story, um, I should probably at least begin with the fact that I uh, was born, uh, like yourself, very far from here, from this <laughs> wet, wild coast. I like to say, I, I grew up in a John Denver song, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River, country <laughs> roads take me home. So I, I grew up in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia um, with my parents uh, and 
grew up a church kid. I grew up in the Lutheran church uh, and then grew up spending an inordinate amount of time outside. Um, my parents live on the edge of uh, a forest and acreage and a creek, and that just became a place that I loved and explored. And so I would really uh, look at these two uh, ongoing influences in my life and in my sense of vocation, one of of a deep faith in God um, and two of, a, of an exploration and a love of God's world. And I had some experiences in high school um, that sort of put the question in my mind around what it meant to be uh, to live a life of ministry. I was on a, a youth retreat um, with about 700 other youth from around the state. <laughs> I know, which sounds like trouble, and it was, in fact. And uh, but amazing time. They 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 did these every year, um, and I ended up. You sort of were put into small groups with people from all over the state with different ministers and leaders. And the minister that was my leader at the time was the Bishop of Virginia, of the Virginia Synod of the Lutheran Church at the time. Amazing man, Jim Monty, who I really count as one of my heroes of the faith. And he, at the end of these few days, um, wrote this little note to me, essentially saying, um, affirming some gifts that he saw in me as a little 17, 18-year-old kind of kid, and um, and encouraging me to pray about how God might call me to use those gifts for ministry. And so I went back home uh, well, kind of my circuits all blown of like, what, what in the world, you know, this is not what I had imagined. <laughs> and I went to my home pastor and shared it with him. Uh, and he said, you know, I've known you a long time and I, I would agree. I think that's something you need to consider. And, um, so that was kind of on a slow burn in a lot of ways in my life of this question of what it meant. I thought for sure that I would never be ordained. I would never find myself wearing a collar or working in a traditional church and, you know, God's sense of humor she proved me wrong in the end. Um, <laughs> but good. I, thank you. I appreciate that. So I, I, it's, it's good to, good to wear black. Um, so yeah, I went to, I then went to university, you know, within a year or two of that event. And that was in the middle of, uh, it was, I started university two weeks after September 11th happened. And so it was in the, the middle of the Bush years and the kind of rise of what I now refer to as a kind of muscular Christianity, you know, we're, we're on the mm -hmm. side of the right and we're going to destroy those people on the wrong. And that just completely clashed with everything that I had known of the, the Christianity of my childhood. But more importantly, I think because it hit me at that kind of developmental stage, it made me want to study and make sense of this stuff myself. So that led me through my university years. Um, and I thought, again, through that time, I had this question about ministry, but all of the people I had talked to said, you know, if you think you might be called to serve the church, you need to first go out and try and do some other things, try and find an employable skill, try and make a go of it. And so in pursuit of their advice, I eventually became a philosophy major at university, which is just hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I had an amazing time. And um, one of my mentors then was teaching courses where you would hike on the Appalachian Trail and study pilgrimage. And so all of these themes of, of, of God's world and caring for the world and uh, understanding our own spiritual life in light of it, all of those were there. And I finished university and I had no clue what to do next as is a, a common course of events, probably for listeners. Um, and a friend of mine had been out in BC uh, to a, a, a youth program that ran week long kind of mountain hikes. Uh, he had been like 20 years before. 
and at that time in my life, all I wanted to do was, you know, hike and canoe and go on adventures. And he said, you got to go out and check it out. Just go spend a summer there. Uh, you know, you figure out what to do with your life after just go have, have some fun. And it was pretty sage advice, actually. I came out, and so I was a wilderness guide up in the coastal mountains for a summer. And in that summer, met uh, Roxy, who's now my partner and wife. And also in that process, was thinking a little bit about how I wanted to continue to study, but I didn't want to go to seminary per se. I didn't really think I wanted to go to a traditional graduate school either. So in the process of being in and out of Vancouver, I started to hear about Regent College and thought, oh, this is kind of an interesting middle ground. It's a little bit of a seminary, but it's a little bit not. And so um, I came a year or two later with the thought of doing a one-year diploma uh, and, and eventually stuck, stuck it around. Um, and I was still really wrestling with this question of, I, I do feel called to serve the church. I feel called into a life of ministry. Uh, and yet I feel like the church is, is just woefully quiet about uh, what it means to care for, for <clears throat> God's creation, especially at a time when it's um, clearly in such need of care. <clears throat> and it was really at Regent and sitting under the the uh, teaching of Mary Ruth and Lauren Wilkinson, um, who have spent a, a career working on these themes. And they yeah. said to me, you know, what if, what if your call to serve the church is uh, to help the church care for creation? I mean, what if those aren't like a fork in the woods, but actually they lead to the same place. Um, and so that really shifted quite a lot for me internally uh, and and led on a kind of what's been the last probably 10 years of life uh, since finishing. I left Regent in 2008, 2009. So yeah, just over 10 years um, and kind of opened up a whole new set of things that have led to some of the work I'm doing today. So. Wow. That's, that's great. And I, I... I love the consistent theme of good mentors uh, giving you yes. good advice. What, yeah. what a gift. Um, could, could you tell us just kind of briefly about the, you're involved in these three different things, but all have kind of similar, yes. <laughs> there, there's coherence between these things. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about them? And actually there, there's a fourth, uh, the Emmaus community is, yeah. is, I mean, maybe that goes with Abbey Church, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about those things? Sure. Yeah. So, <clears throat> well, let me just pick up the story after Regent because that's where I, um, in the in my final time at Regent, I took a summer course with Peter and Miranda Harris, who uh, English couple who founded this international organization called Arasha. <clears throat> that's A R O C H A, and it was um, it's a funny name. It was founded in Portugal in 1983, and. Uh, Arasha means the rock in Portuguese, and it is a faith-based, a Christian organization that uh, cares for creation in very practical, hands-on ways. We're in 20 countries around the world, and the projects vary quite widely, place to place, in terms of how the, the people and individuals and teams on the ground uh, assess what, what the needs of the people in those places are. And so in connecting with them as part of the summer course, they put me in touch with some folk outside Vancouver, kind of tucked in near the border down by sort of Surrey White Rock area in a, a rural setting who had a small project there. And I had heard about it and in fact read about it, but it appeared to me that they were a bunch of scientists and, and sort of birders. And with <laughs> much love for those folk, I don't count myself among them in quite that way. 
um, I don't have the right trousers for it for the first thing, but no, it's uh, <laughs> it's a good group. But I thought my interests are connected, but not really the same. I'm not a scientist. I don't have that training. But as I spent time with them, I discovered, well, this is actually really a community of folk who are trying to live together and live this out. And that was something that was increasingly important for my partner, Roxy and I, we had been married by that point. We wanted to live in community. We wanted to, you know, find people who had a common commitment to faith to push each other on in that journey. So as we got to know this little organization, it just seemed like it was it was quite a fit for what we wanted to do. Roxy had a background in environmental education at the time, and they they had, you know, a small nonprofit always has needs for more help, right? So we ended up down there and um, I, we were working with interns. Uh, I was doing some work with churches. I would go out on a Sunday morning and preach at some church that invited us to come in um, and did, you know, teaching and got involved in some of the smaller, like Bible college, university places. And we did that work. And we were also then living at this uh, center. So if you tried to imagine, you know, imagine a small rural kind of old farm mixed with an uh, like an, uh, you know, an organic veggie farm. Then you have an, a children's environmental education program. So on any day, you'd have groups of 20 to 30 kids roaming around. You do have a scientific arm. So you have folks in training and scientists who are carrying nets and tools and instruments, measuring fish and streams and water temperatures, and all sorts of things. And then every day, really at the heart of it in some ways is the community. And so you gather for for meals and you sit around a big table and eat lunch with you know, 30 to 40 of your closest friends <laughs> or, or guests and visitors and volunteers and people who show up. It, it's a lovely place. And it was a deep privilege to spend time there. And we were there for seven years and uh, children were born there and had an amazing informative time. And over the course of that time, I, while I love that work, I had this sense that um, I did a lot of church engagement and in that often found myself, found people telling me how terrible the church was and how lagging behind the church was on uh, these issues and topics and how the, you know we need change in the church and this and that. And I would sort of agree with that. I mean, it's the easiest thing to do is to lob big rocks over the fence at the big bad church, right? And I went along with that. But as I did so, I just grew increasingly uneasy and this kind of stirring inside of me that I can't, I just can't make sense of it in hindsight without it being kind of the, the spirit prompting to say, I just had this question as I would leave these churches. And it was like, it's easy to throw rocks at the church, but you know, what are you doing about that? Like what, mm -hmm. how are you actually playing a role in representing the life of the church in the world? And so um, that combined with some other circumstances that I won't get into, led us to take a step back from living and working at Brooksdale, the big Arasha center. We moved to Victoria uh, at the end of 2016, but you know, my vocation in a way it remained the same and I didn't know what that meant. Like mm. I had lived it in this very specific context. I felt pretty clear that some of my work was as, as kind of an educator. Certainly it was, I was working in a lot of ways as a minister. I mean, you know, we had interns coming from around the world, many of whom had, um, had faiths that were in all sorts of different places and growth and questions and, um, but in, in coming to Victoria pretty quickly, we did find ourselves in the context of this small community called the Emmaus community. Um, 
we actually heard of it first through the church. They have a, a Sunday gathering church called the Abbey Church, and it's a it's a shared ministry of the Anglican and United Churches. They meet Sundays at 4 p.m. here in Victoria. Uh, and we were, of course, looking, searching for a church in a new town and just sort of fell in love with the people. And then we looked at the the Emmaus community that founded this, and they the members take vows to live a life of prayer, simplicity, and presence. And I read their rule of life and I remember chuckling and taking it back to Roxy and saying, this is basically how we've been trying to live. And we felt, you know, a move like this was, it's quite lonely. I mean, you did a big move at first. It's very disorienting. It's very lonely. Um, Doing it with kids sort of doubles that down. You know, you feel like, where's your support system? And so just the, the absolute grace to find ourselves with, I mean, it's a small community, MAS community membership. You know, we've got seven or eight uh, vowed members. And then we have companions of the community who essentially go through a formation process and say, we, we feel called to live this sort of life, but with a little bit more of a distance from you. Some of those folk live actually far away. So one of our companions is, you know, far up Island. Some live right here in Victoria, but they, they have a certain uh, degree of independence from the community. So that started, um, that was an interesting journey. And after being a part of that community for probably a year, Roxy and I were in the um, formation process. And uh, the couple who are, I know friends of yours and dear friends of mine, Rob and Megan, who were running the church plant really said to me one summer, we're going to be going away for three weeks this summer. And we think you should run the church while we're gone. And I probably, I don't know what your explicit explicit rating is for this podcast, but my reply, you know, was, are you crazy is the gentle version. Yeah. So I just thought, how in the world do you think I could ever do that? Um, But it was kind of, again, one of these gratuitous moments of being kind of thrust into something that I've I discovered quite quickly, I loved the process of planning liturgy and shaping a time of worship and not just about music, but about, you know, how what we're reading in scripture reflects what we're singing and how we're praying and how even the visual setup of the space, how all of this comes together. Um, and this question of how how I was called to serve was buzzing in there. And so that led me into discernment conversations with our local Anglican bishop at the time. Uh, and ultimately to be ordained. Um, so I am an ordained priest in the Anglican Church of Canada. And then through that conversation that emerged, really, um, the vision for Wild Church was kind of sitting in the background, which really was to say, you know, what would it mean if Christians took seriously the call to care for God's world uh, and resituated our whole life of faith more, more consciously uh, in that context. So mm-hmm. some of that means actually learning the places that we live. We don't just live in the world or in Canada. You know, it's funny being from the States, my family, when I see them, which I haven't for ages now, but they will often say, how's Canada? And I have to say, <laughs> I have no, I have no bloody idea, right? Yeah. I don't live, I don't, te- I mean, technically I live in Canada, but I actually live, I live in a very small section of Southern Vancouver Island, right? I can name yeah. it a different way, but um, so coming to see that our whole, our actual material life and the place that we live, it actually does shape and really mediate our, our life for us. 
And that's the life that God wants to meet us in. It's not in some abstract spiritual place far off and away. It really is here. Mm. And so that's the heart, I think, behind Wild Church. And it's also to realize that a lot of people have been deeply bruised and burned by the church, and they don't want to walk in those doors. But they carry a deep faith, a deep sense of hope, maybe lingering at times. But um, So I really wanted to try and find places where those conversations can be rich and enlivening, even if that means it has to happen outside of the kind of official walls of Christendom. It's actually probably a richer place to do it. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, man, that's so good. I, I love uh, hearing what's going on over over there across the water. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I actually uh, reviewed uh, Leah Castamo's book, one of the co-founders of Arasha. Uh, sure. Uh, the book Planted before I moved here. So it was one of the, it was on my list of things to do when we got here was make sure I got out there to see what they're up to. Uh, I highly recommend nice. the book and uh, I reviewed it very fav- favorably. <laughs> it is. Yeah. I would plug that too. It's a wonderful book. It's, it's really her narrating the story of Arasha Canada mm-hmm. and very much narrating her own journey of, of faith of coming to understand and really wrestling through the, the kind of recognition that for, for a, you know, probably a significant number of folks who grew up in a Christian background, for some reason, our, this call to care for creation, it doesn't sit well. And there's mm. theological reasons for that. I think there's kind of social and cultural reasons for that. Um, but she, she does a wonderful job and it's a short-ish and very accessible book. So I'm glad that you've liked it. And I think it'd be a good one for folk who are curious about this, but maybe just not sure how to begin. It'd be a really good place to start. Yeah, I think I think the thing I, I said about it, and the thing that's coming through in what you're uh, saying, is it, it, I'll confess it actually took me a while to kind of get into the book, uh, not because there's like it, it it really is a great book and I highly recommend it, but because it, it took me a while to figure out what she was doing, uh, right. because there's there's you know science and then like her own story and then like drawings of yeah. <laughs> things mixed in and really kind of form follows function it's it's a it's a book that embody or well embodies i don't know if that's the right word but uh you know this kind of coherence and integration of a whole life committed to Mm -hmm. um living in a particular way in this world so so i like that a lot um yeah and i i think i think that what you've finished up uh saying just a second ago probably is is uh you know what you've called watershed discipleship in a nutshell. Is that, is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah. And I should say, I, I didn't coin the term. I I've been part of a, a initially small group of folks who have explored that term. Um, in that, in that form, I think it came from um, Chad Myers, who okay. some of your listeners may know, if not, they, they probably should know. He's a uh, activist and theological educator and, and scholar based down in, in Ventura, uh, in the Ventura watershed in California. I, I went on a, um, on an institute that he led in 2010 and, um, was just starting to explore these sorts of themes. And that led to him calling this kind of roundtable discussion of folk who were, you know, working from within a faith-based space, were working within environmental concerns generally. Uh, but also we're seeking to locate those with the kind of particularity. Mm-hmm. And so that meeting actually happened, I think in 2011, 2012, somewhere in there and outside of, um, 
outside of uh, like Annapolis, Maryland somewhere. And um, we attended that and met a real fascinating group of about 40 folks out of that. Then he called a group of about 12 of us to contribute chapters to a short book uh, that he edited called Watershed Discipleship. It's again, a helpful resource for folks. And it was a fascinating project to be invited into because it was a group of, as I say, 10 or 12 of us, we were all under the age of 40 and all working towards environmental aims from, from within a faith tradition from all over and in a variety, right? Um, not very monolithic in, in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I think the heart, the heart of that watershed discipleship is to say, how do we begin to envision and live our life of discipleship from within the context of our place? And so the same way that you might look at, say, um, you know, a liberation theology would urge us to do our theology from the vantage point of the oppressed and the poor, right? Watershed discipleship would say we need to do our theology and, and more importantly, live our discipleship. We, at, let that be shaped by the place that we're in. Um, and that I think that comes in recognition uh, in part that we are in a watershed moment that um, the stability of of life on the planet is is in fact uh, falling quickly apart. <laughs> yeah. So the the ability for us to envision our lives as situated, as you were saying, in a kind of integrative whole, I mean, I, I actually think it does something to our psyches when we look at the whole as being creation and its rhythms and its uh, stability, and we see, well, if that is actually shaky. It's hard for me to see how my own life or even our social, cultural, political life, that's also shaky. And this is a time where all those things are, are shaking up. And I think that's, that leads to an incredible amount of, of stress for all of us. Hmm. So then the question of what to do with that, and, and in part it is to say, well, we have to first locate ourselves somewhere. You know, we can't just locate ourselves. I meet a lot of people who, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm passionate about climate change. I'm, I'm thankful, I'm glad. That, that's an urgent problem. Um, it's it's kind of hard to love the whole climate, right? It's kind of hard to love the whole creation. Like I think it it helps to say, and in fact, when you when you ask people their stories, what you hear is, you know what what taught me to love the world actually was this small place, uh, my grandparents' house or this creek where I grew up in my case, or whatever it may be. Yeah. The watershed discipleship says, okay, so uh, recognizing we're in a watershed moment, uh, we need to live our discipleship within our watersheds. And to do that, we have to first, in a way, become disciples of our watersheds. We have to learn the places that we're in. And hmm. so then we're we're looking at those places um, and there's beautiful things about that. And there's ugly and, and painful things about, traumatic things about that. All of the places we live have, you know, very mixed histories of, um, you know, whether it's indigenous settler relationships and trauma, um, whether it's just the trauma of a kind of a resource extraction uh, or a culture, you know, that has done a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of deep work in that of understanding the place, but then really understanding how do I how do I begin to to see that as shaping my heart, my affection, the way I want to respond to kind of God's call in my life. I think I heard first heard the term watershed discipleship from uh, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Keysmat, who are doing cool stuff in Ontario. So I think that's really remarkable. And you said something earlier about the challenge of doing this stuff kind of in isolation. And and I, I really love the the thread of 
community that that has been a part of uh well it seems to me just about everything you've done um how do we i guess my question is kind of how, how how do we cultivate that community and what you know what, what should people do what can people do if they don't have that around them you know what's a first step in, in kind of taking this stuff on if they don't have you know, a, an intentional new monastic community to join uh, with a rule of life and other other folks who are doing things like this, or, or maybe their congregation. Um, you know, I would say my congregation is not a congregation that spends a whole lot of time talking about the importance of the environment. And, and sure. that's probably something that should change. But uh, if we're kind of isolated, how do, how do we go about cultivating that um, in our own individual lives, perhaps? Yeah, that's a great question. Um... And yeah, I mean, lovely for you to invoke Brian and Sylvia. They are, you know, colleagues and friends. They were a part of this meeting that I mentioned this roundtable years ago, and I recall having a great time uh, interacting with them there. And um, on the on the point of community, I, yeah, I would I would say it's so important um, to realize that our our life, our faith, everything can only be done uh, in community. And, you know, it's tempting. Some of our traditions, you know, um, some of our traditions really get us to read the Bible as though it's really written to you, you know, and how does this, how do you find yourself in this? Right. And that's, that's helpful, right? That is a helpful place at times to go. And uh, we're, you know, we've just started Lent. I don't know when this will air, but we're two weeks into Lent and that it's a deeply personal journey that you're making. There's no way around that. But the reality is that all, all of the Bible wasn't really written to you. It was written to y'all, as they yeah. say, where I come from. And I think insisting on that y'all as an important context is, is essential. And so your question's a hard one because I've, I've been in that place, right, of going, I, I'm, I'm longing for this and I'm not sure where those people are or if they exist. I've been in places in a new city and in a church that I think I kind of like, but they don't quite share some of the things and I'm not sure. So I, yeah, I want to honor that for folk who are in that place that that it's hard and there's a grief that you carry in that and a sadness and not necessarily a simple solution to it. Mm. Um, I, I I would say for folk who are in a season of life where it's possible uh, to um, to travel, which none of us are right now, <laughs> but when that is possible again. I think it. I think it's essential to spend a little chunk of time in communities other than your own that have been formed over a longer chunk of time, yeah. who are seeking to live into the way that you think you want to live into. Um, go, go spend three or six months with them if you can. Uh, I know folks who did a tour of communities and spent, you know, two weeks in ten different communities, and I think that's invaluable in shaping in shaping us because. Community is hard. You know, like it's not easy. The more you get to know people, the more they get to know you. You know, it's not just a, a rosy picture of life together. It's hard. And it means confronting the kind of parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily always want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, part of the wisdom in a new monastic community of people actually taking vows is that it, it ideally holds them together once they actually don't like each other a little bit or once they have a fight that's actually really hard to get past. I mean, this is the same wisdom, of course, in our our other vowed relationships that it it sure. holds you around. Um, it's not perfect, of course, it can fall apart, but 
So I would think for folk to think about visiting some communities. Um, it's interesting with COVID now, I'm leading a book study on this through this wild church group and kind of in partnership with Arasha. Um, and we've got a large number of folk from right here in Victoria who know me through other contexts. And then we have folk who are joining the group from, from Charlotte, North Carolina and from the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and Northern Alberta. And um, so folk who are saying, I, I'm passionate about this. I need to be in regular dialogue with folk who also are and digging mm -hmm. in and learning in ways that can help sustain me because I'm, I'm not finding that in this community I'm in. Sometimes that might mean you need, you need to, uh, like what, what leverage do you have to bring some change in your community? Sometimes I think folks say, I need to find a community where I actually fit that, that, that shares a little more of the, um, the values that I bring. Mm -hmm. I think that's all for discernment. So I'm not pushing any of that, but those would be some of the pieces that I would, that I would urge folks to, to sit with. Um, and then, as I say, to not, you know, to realize that no community is going to, um, be a perfect fit and a perfect sort of, um, you're not going to walk away, you know, every engagement feeling perfectly satisfied. That's not what's on offer. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That's helpful. Thanks. I, I mean, it's, uh, the, the internet is a lot of things, but it, it does allow us to, to connect and, uh, uh, with folks that we otherwise couldn't have connected with. So there, there, there's a real advantage in the technology that's available to us. So. Well, that's true. And I think that's why I raised that last point that it's a it's a double edged sword because it it makes us aware that there are all these other things out these other groups out there doing these amazing things and they all look beautiful and like they'd be the easiest people to get along with on the internet <laughs> until you meet them or you meet me. I mean, I you know, uh, we all we all have this. So that's why I just I urge both a yes, let's take what we can leverage what tools we have to find some people um, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to connect with folk and we now, yeah, Wild Church Victoria, our hope was we would be doing monthly or semi-monthly gatherings outdoors, some of which would be kind of a, you know, contemplative kind of worship time, a lot of silence, maybe a little bit of reading, maybe an occasional sort of acapella song, nothing too heavy. And then we would be doing, uh, you know, gathering to do beach cleanups and to, uh, go to the march at the legislature and these sorts of things. Well, all of that is on hold with COVID meals mm -hmm. together. I mean, the things that were core to who we are. And so we've started to actually curate a bit of an online, a kind of an online worship. And I, I am the most skeptical of all this. <laughs> um, and yet we did this two weeks ago and posted it on the wild church network page. And the, the positive feedback from people from all across North America was remarkable that people are hungering for this and this it connects mm. in. So yeah, I, I'm losing my skepticism that we can actually have some meaningful connection uh, through these technologies and tools. But I think for the sake of our humanity, we have to keep those grounded in, in real lives as best we can. And that's where we do, I think, need to find some folk around us. So yeah, that's good. Thank you. And that, that page, is that a Facebook page or a website? Yeah, Facebook Both. page. So folk can look for Wild Church Victoria. There's a there's a, a Facebook page and a group. And then the Wild Church Network is another, uh, I think it's a group. And um, there are there are Wild Church projects happening all over. It's a growing kind of movement. It's, it is really unaffiliated. People have asked me, oh, so you started the chapter of Wild Church in Victoria. And I said, well, it's really not a... I didn't fill out a form to do it. I've kind of, I've <laughs> borrowed the name and the concept 
And so they vary quite differently, right? From okay. groups that look more or less, there's a group in upstate New York, I think it's an Episcopal church. Uh, it looks like an, what you would think if a bunch of Episcopalians went and worshiped out in their yard, that's what they do, right? Nice. And then there are groups um, who are uh, who are exploring lots of alternative edges to what it means to, to, to worship, the relationship to the to the kind of historic center of the faith is is divergent. Uh, my friend and colleague, I think, are probably a mutual with you. Laurel Dykstra leads a group in Vancouver called Salal mm -hmm. and Cedar. They really have a focus on environmental justice, and so they're really, you know, they're they are gathering outside in a kind of worshipful way, but they're also protesting. They're sitting in on Burnaby Mountain to protest pipelines, and they're going and providing, you know, mutual aid and care for those who've been arrested and. So, I mean, wonderful work and yet very different than some of the other wild church projects. So it is a pretty broad network. Um, and I think that that's part of its strength at this point, to be perfectly honest. That's great. Well, I'll encourage people to go check that out. I, I was going to ask you your elevator pitch for why Christians should care about creation, but I think you've kind of, you know, <laughs> I think if we can't pick it up uh, from this conversation, uh, then maybe go back to the beginning and start again. Um, I'm really grateful for your time and, and for the work that you're doing and the witness that you're, you're giving in the church. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what happens. People should read Watershed Discipleship. I'll send <laughs> and plant it. We'll give them a, a reading list if they need there you go. more questions. Uh, but yeah, man, I hope we get to see each other in person. This has been a, this has been a great time. Thanks Thank for you. Hanging out. My pleasure. Thanks. Hey, thanks for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt as much as I did. Here are some things I'm thinking about from our conversation. I hear in Matt's story the important fact that not all education is about getting a job, but that following what lights you up can set you on the way to meaningful work. Second, two things that came up for me more than once in our conversation were the importance of discernment and community when it comes to living integrated Christian lives. I think these things are indispensable if we'll be our true selves. It's always worth taking time to think and pray seriously about what we're meant to do, and all the better if you have folks who will care for you to do that with. Next, I really liked Matt's realization that two ideas or options may not represent a fork in the road, but may actually be the same path. And finally, what questions nag at your heart? Could that be the spirit drawing you in a particular direction? The books we referenced were Planted by Leah Castamo and Watershed Discipleship, edited by Ched Myers. Thanks as always to the Foxes and Fowl team, University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain region of the United Church of Canada for making this happen. Thanks to Davis Miller for the tunes. Check them out wherever you find your music. And until next time, grace and peace.